John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Welcome to War of the Rebellion Stories of the Civil War. I'm your host, Leon, and this is a reading of the history. Reminiscence of the 19th Massachusetts Regiment by Captain John G.B. Adams. Chapter 10 Battles of the Wilderness, Todd's Tavern, and Laurel Hill. Engagement at the Bloody Angle. We had now quite a respectable regiment, numbering two field, ten line officers, and about three hundred and fifty men. We broke camp the 2nd of May, were ordered to move, and soon found ourselves crossing the river to engage in the Battle of the Wilderness, before we realized it being in line of battle moving forward. Our first order was to deploy as skirmishers, and let the line which was being hotly pressed pass in rear to receive a fresh supply of ammunition, while we held the line. I had about twenty men in my command. We advanced as ordered, but soon received fire from our flank and rear, and found that the rebels had broken our lines. I gave the order, by the right flank, double quick, and we went quicker than that. We dodged behind trees as we ran, and the rebels were so near that in looking back I saw them capture Thompson of Company B, with the exception of one other wounded, all escaped, and the boys thought me a safe man to follow. We rejoined the regiment, and were ordered in again. We fought all day. Sometimes the rebels drove us, sometimes we drove them. The woods were so thick it was hard to tell friend from foe. The dead and wounded of both armies were strewn all through the woods, which caught fire. It was a terrible sight. We knew where the poor fellows were, but could not reach them, and the air was suffocating with the smell of burning human flesh. None knew the result of the battle. We changed front the next day and continued the fight. Night came on. It was so dark you could not see a rod before you. But we were ordered to hold our position in the advanced line until recalled. We remained until midnight. Then, as it grew a little lighter, the moon having broken through the clouds. Colonel Rice went to the right and found we were not connected with any other regiment. At the left he found the same. The officers held a consultation all agreed that we should obey orders, but should we allow the regiment to be captured because someone had made a mistake? We concluded to fall back until we connected with something, and after a while struck a German brigade. The Dutch commander undertook to drive us back, but we knew our business, and when Colonel Rice found our brigade commander, he was informed that an aide had been sent to recall us several hours before and in the darkness 
must have passed our regiment without seeing us. The conversation was on the result of the battle. Most of us thought it was another Chancellorsville, and that the next day we should recross the river. But when the order came by the left flank march, we found that Grant was not made that way, and we must continue the fight. Our loss was not very heavy in the wilderness. We had several wounded and captured, but only three killed. Among the wounded, the first day was Color Sergeant Ben Falls, struck in the leg, and being in command of the Color Company, I sent him to the rear. The following day he reported back, and I asked why he did not stay. Oh, he said, some fool will get a hold of the color and lose it. I guess I had better stand by. We marched to William's Tavern, where we went into line of battle and threw up works. From this time on we were engaged every day. The 8th we had a lively brush at Todd's Tavern, and drove the rebels a mile. The ninth crossed Poe River. The 10th recrossed and engaged to the enemy at Laurel Hill. We found them strongly entrenched, and a charge was ordered. The opinion of every officer and man was that we could not dislodge them, as we must charge a long distance over an open field. General Barlow was to lead, and the 19th was to be the directing battalion. The order to our division was, Follow the colors of the 19th. With cheers for General Barlow, we advanced over the crest of the hill, the rebels opening on us with a terrible fire. Grape and canister plowed through our ranks. Both color bearers were shot down, and for a moment our line melted away. But other hands grasped the colors, and we renewed the charge, only to be again repulsed. No army on earth could capture the works with such odds against it. But we charged once more, then gave it up. Among the first to go down was Color Sergeant Ben Falls. He was in advance of me, and as he fell he said, John, your old uncle has got his quietest this time. I could not stop to reply then, but in the lull of the battle went to him and found that he was shot through the body. He was carried to the rear and died the next day. No man in the ranks of the Union Army rendered better service than Benjamin F. Falls, always ready for duty, ever cheerful. His influence for good extended through the regiment. Another to fall that day was Sergeant William H. Ross. Until this campaign, he had been detailed at the headquarters of the division quartermaster, and one would think he was making up for lost time. From the day we entered the wilderness until he gave up his life, he was conspicuous for his bravery. Corporal George E. Breed of Company C, a brave little fellow, not much larger than a knapsack, was serving his second enlistment, and was not twenty years old when killed. Several others were killed, besides many wounded. We remained here until the night of the 11th, when men were detailed to keep up the skirmish firing while the brigade was withdrawn. 
It was a dark, dreary night, and we fell over stumps and fallen trees as we moved to the left. At four o'clock, on the morning of the twelfth, we formed in line. Our orders were to give commands in whispers, have dippers so hung that they would not rattle against bayonets, and move forward. We were soon in front of the rebel works, which were protected which were protected by Abatee. We tore these aside and passed on. One regiment, forgetting the orders, gave a cheer, and the rebels were aroused, yet over the works we went, and the fiercest hand-to-hand fight of the war ensued. We captured General Bushrod Johnson and his entire division, including twenty-two pieces of artillery and seventeen stands of colors. The woods were so thick that advancing our lines became broken. When we reached a clearing, the only officers in sight were Colonel Rice, Lieutenant Thompson, and myself. "'Where are the colors?' said Colonel Rice. We could not answer the question. At that moment we saw several hundred rebels running back to their lines. Colonel Rice said, "'I see a Massachusetts color, and we'll go after it.' You and Lieutenant Thompson try to capture those rebels. Hastily gathering men from nearly every regiment in the corps, we threw forward a skirmish line and captured nearly four hundred prisoners. After turning them over to the provost guard, we returned to the line, found the colors, but the colonel was not there. And the rest of the day we fought where we could get a chance. As I was standing behind the works, waiting for something to do, Captain Harry Hale, who was serving on General Webb's staff, rode up and said, We want to get two guns that the rebels have abandoned, which, unless we bring them in, will be retaken. Can't you get them? Calling to the mob, there was no organization of regiments at the moment, Come on, boys! We rushed out and brought them in, turning them on the rebels. We loaded them with everything we could find, Ammunition that did not fit, old musket barrels, etc. But not knowing how to work the guns, we were in about as much danger as the rebels. While engaged here, the rebels had recaptured a small part of their works on our right, and we were ordered to move to that point. Collecting as many men of the regiment as we could find, we marched by the flank to what has since been known as the Bloody Angle. Here, we found hot work. While we were firing, the rebels ran up a white flag, and we advanced to receive their surrender. But as soon as we were over the brow of the little hill that had protected us, they fired a volley, killing several of our men. From that time until dark, the cry was no quarter. Part of the time we were on one side of the works, and they on the other, each trying to fire over. I saw Edward Fletcher, of Company C, shoot a man who was trying to get a shot at one of our boys, and was so near that Fletcher's musket was covered with blood. We continued to fire until our ammunition was exhausted, 
than were relieved by the men of the Sixth Corps. Just as long as we could see a man, the firing continued. We slept on the field, ready to renew the battle in the morning, and at daylight waited for the rebels to open. Not a shot was fired, and we advanced. What a sight met our eyes as we went over the works. Rebels lay four and five deep in the trenches. Many were alive but unable to move, as the dead were piled on top of them. Our better natures were aroused. We laid out the dead for burial, cared for the wounded, then withdrew to the rear to reorganize our regiments. While resting in the rear, a man from the Sixth Corps came to me and said, Is this the 19th Massachusetts? I answered, Yes. Have you a Lieutenant Adams in your regiment? I again made the same reply. Well, he is dead. He lies just over the little hill. Here is his revolver case that I took from him. I then understood what he meant. A few days before, finding that it was impossible to carry my revolver on account of my wounds, I had given it to Lieutenant Johnny Ferris, and he must have been the one whom the man had found. We had been fighting so hard that we had no time to think of each other. And I then remembered that I had not seen Ferris since we charged in the morning of the previous day. I went with the man and found Johnny, shot through the head, in front of the rebel works. He had fallen over a tree that the rebels had cut down, and must have been killed as we rushed through the abatee. His death was a severe loss to the regiment. He had been promoted from the ranks for good conduct, was loved by the officers, and worshipped by the men. With sad hearts, we laid him to rest near where he fell. We could not find Colonel Rice, and feared he must be dead on the field. But after searching, and not finding his body, concluded he must have been captured with some of our men when the rebels made the dash on our right flank. This was true. Colonel Rice was captured, but escaped, and rejoined the regiment in August. One little incident occurring in the fight at the Bloody Angle, although not connected with the regiment, is worthy of mention. When we were relieved by the Sixth Corps, the Sixth Wisconsin was in our front. One of their men was an Indian. He would crawl up near the rebel line, wait until they fired, then fire and drag himself back. He could hardly be seen above the ground. I became much interested in his mode of fighting, and his face was impressed upon my mind. One day, in 1867, while working in a shoe factory at Lynn, an Indian came into the place selling baskets. The moment I saw him, I thought his countenance was familiar, and wondered where I had seen him before. It came to me that he was the Spotsylvania Indian. I asked if he was in the army, and he replied, Yes, 6th Wisconsin. Then I was sure he was the man. We talked over the battle and became good friends. He was a very bright fellow, a member of the Masonic Brotherhood, 
but he said, East no place for an Indian, and I assisted him to return west. We were under fire nearly all the time, marching from right to left, and on the 17th occupied the works taken on the 12th. While here we learned that Lieutenant Moses Shackley, who was a first sergeant in the 59th Massachusetts, had been killed the day before. The 18th, we fought all day, charged twice on the enemy's works, and lost several men. On the 21st, occurred one of the sad events of the year. John D. Starbird of Company K was one of three deserters who returned with the regiment. The charges against him had been placed on a file on condition that he serve faithfully to the end of the war. While he had promised to do this, he did not intend to, and was only kept in battle at the wilderness by fear of death from the officers. On the 18th he deserted while under fire, was captured the 19th, tried by drumhead court-martial the 20th, and ordered to be shot at 7 a.m. on the 21st. Early in the morning of that day, Adjutant Curtis came to me and said, Jack, you are detailed to take charge of the shooting of Starbird. I was not pleased with the order. And Captain Mumford, who was ever ready to do a kind act for a friend, exchanged duty with me, I going on picket for him. The detail consisted of eight men from our regiment. Their muskets were loaded by Captain Mumford, seven with ball cartridges, one with a blank. Starbird was seated on his coffin, blindfolded. The order was given to fire. Six shots struck him near the heart. The other musket hung fire, and the ball entered his leg. He died at once. Those who read this and do not understand the situation at the time, many think the killing of Starbird unjust and cruel. But it was not. At that time, there were in the ranks of every regiment men who had no interest in the cause. They had enlisted for the bounty, and did not intend to render any service. They not only shirked duty, but their acts and conversation were demoralizing good men. The shooting of Starbird changed all this. Men who had straggled and kept out of battle now were in the ranks, and the result to our corps alone was as good as if we had been reinforced by a full regiment. Chapter 11 Battles at Totopotomi Creek and Cold Harbor Which... Of course, we will catch up on next week. We have some interesting things to get into for this episode, so let's take a look at the show notes. And it's good to be back, everyone. Been uh, very busy for personal reasons. I don't want to get into it, but um, after this next week, I'm going to have a lot more time to do podcast-related things, so you should probably see an uptick 
I'm not going to be working a job anymore. So anyway, all right, let's, uh, let's get into this. <laughs> Gosh. Now I'm not going to cover all of these battles, just a few things I wanted to mention. Captain Adams telling us his regiment reached respectability at 350 men down from the 1000 when they had set out from the start tells us quite a bit about what it means to be a veteran maybe in this conflict. And it seems as every regiment seems to settle on a number between 250 and 450 as a fighting regiment, that is. But of all these battles, I do want to focus on the mule shoe at the Battle of Spotsylvania. For the sheer intensity it seemed to have in the memoirs of the folk of the soldiers who had fought there. General Lee at Spotsylvania had made a mistake and created a bulge in his defensive line. A mule shoe, they called it. One mile in length and one mile in circumference around as it bulged out of the Confederate line. A young colonel with the last name of Upton had previously used a tactic to capture enemy works from the rebels in a previous battle by making a long, deep column of troops that would rush at the enemy without stopping to fire, without stopping to help a wounded comrade. Just go right at him and punch a hole through the defensive line that would allow your troops to get in and behind the defenders. I think some German generals would later become famous for their tactics with their panzers. And Napoleon himself also used it on a larger, albeit slower scale, with his French infantry. Where the rival generals of Europe would be faced with fighting off his long, deep columns of infantry on the attack that could punch through their lines because of the weight that was behind the French infantry. So something similar was done here. Upton had previously launched an attack with 5,000 men at the Mule Shoe that had some success. So General Grant decided, well, what could you do with a whole corps? The end result? 24 hours of rifle-muzzle-to-rifle-muzzle combat. Bayonets, plates, spoons, knives, shoes, and rifles. Anything that could kill a man was to be used. It's described, as one Union soldier put it, as a literal Saturnalia of blood. Tens of thousands of troops fighting with nothing more than a pile of dirt between them. At 4.30 a.m., on a foggy, rain-soaked morning, May 12th, 1864, 20,000 Federal troops launched themselves at the Confederate Center at Spotsylvania. Hardly saying a word and moving at the run, 
they brushed aside Confederate pickets who had no time to run, and went straight on into the rebel works, where rebel troops were still asleep. They captured 3,000 prisoners and 22 cannons, two general officers and 30 stands of colors. But General Lee, calm and collected as ever, was watching the carnage unfold. He simply took off his hat and sent for reinforcements. And those reinforcements battled the Union intruders while they constructed, in the ongoing battle, new defensive works directly in front of the battle lines. And then it was really on. Tens of thousands of soldiers crammed into a front one mile long and one mile wide. It would be one of the most horrific days in American history. Lines so close, only dirt piles four feet wide kept them apart. As they fought for the next 24 hours, torrential rain fell from the sky and turned the mule and turned the mule shoe into a quagmire of blood, mud, and the dead so deep that men suffocated under the weight. One body recovered alone had 80 bullets in it. The 19th Massachusetts in its official history wrote this. At 3 a.m., a long halt was made, and the men were ordered to lie down in line of battle and rest. The night was very dark, and a heavy mist had followed the rain. After an hour's rest, a faint cheering was heard in the distance, which grew louder and louder. Fall in was ordered, and the march in line through the forest was resumed in silence. The mud was deep, the little streams swollen and the undergrowth thick. But at daylight, the regiment found itself in a field at Spotsylvania, in front of a line of Confederate rifle pits. The fog rolled slowly away, and the division was formed in line of battle, close to the rifle pits. The line extended over a knoll to the left, and along the woods on the right, the 19th Massachusetts being the guiding regiment or battalion of direction of the division, preparatory to the desperate charge of the Confederate position at the Angle, which General Hancock had decided to attempt. This angle was afterward called the Bloody Angle. When everything was in readiness, the men were cautioned to be careful in firing at first as some skirmishers were out in front. Then came the order to move forward. As the line entered the woods, General Webb, commanding the brigade, stepped to the front and said, Men of the 1st Brigade, we are ordered to charge the enemy at this point. Keep together as well as you can. If you get broken up, Follow the colors of the 19th Massachusetts. I shall go with you. Forward. And away went the brigade, as did the rest of the corps, at other points on the double quick. Cheer, boys, cheer, cried General Webb as they rushed on. 
Fighting had already begun by the first division, and the men of the regiment responded lustily, entering the jungle. Moving toward the front for a short distance, they entered the thick woods. The advancing 19th was still cheering, and the bullets were raining thick about them. A number fell wounded, and among the first was color-bearer Benjamin F. Falls, shot through the body. He died on the following day. In a moment, the rebel fortifications were reached, and the division dashed forward, carried the first line with a rush, and Colonel Rice, with a part of the 19th, jumped over the breastworks and then dashed at the second line, where some of the enemy were captured. They were taken entirely by surprise, many not having turned out of their blankets. Not being supported and out of ammunition, the brigade could not hold the position for more than an hour. Against the support which the enemy brought up and was forced to retire with considerable alacrity. There was no support to hold the first line at this point, and having no ammunition, the brigade was obliged to relinquish its hold and retire through the woods. While thus retiring, the regiments became mixed up and were reformed about a half-mile from the works which they had reached. They remained in the rear of the Len Landron house for a few moments, while coffee was made, rations eaten, and cartridge boxes refilled. Then the 19th moved forward with the brigade and took position near the angle. In the line composed of the 1st Division and other troops who had succeeded in holding this portion of the line, rain had been falling for some time, and was now coming down in torrents. The storm of bullets was, however, almost as thick as the raindrops. As the regiment took its place outside of the works, to the left of where the brigade had entered them, settling themselves in the muddy trench, the, man, the men began work, loading and firing as rapidly as possible. Some of them were too much exhausted to stand up. These sat down on the edge of the trench and loaded guns for other men to fire. Two or three were sometimes kept busy loading guns which one man would fire. The smoke hung in a dense cloud all about as the air was too heavy to permit it to rise. At one time during the fighting at this point, Captain J.G.B. Adams struck up the inspiring song, The Battle Cry of Freedom. It was taken up by the singers of the 19th and other regiments and made to echo over the hills amid the rattle of musketry. Once in a while the fire slackened, and then broke out with renewed vigor as the rebels endeavored to retake their works. Ammunition and hard bread was brought up by packed mules and opened in the rear of the line, the men helping themselves to each. The scene was to be remembered. The ditch which had been dug in throwing up the works was crowded with men from different states, belonging to two or three different corps, soaked with rain, their faces so begrimmed with powder as to be almost unrecognizable. Some standing ankle-deep in the red mud, firing, while the edge of the ditch was lined with others sitting and loading as fast as possible and munching hard bread. 
the crumbs of which were scattered around their smutty mouths and besprinkled, and besprinkled their beards. The mud in the ditch was so thick and clung to the boots in such heavy masses that it was difficult to move about. The men's right shoulders were thickly plastered with it from the butts of their muskets. There was a battery in action near the Landron house, which sent shells over their heads so near as to keep the men in mortal dread. Soon, a relieving line came in and the men fell back. Just then, a shell came over, struck and exploded just where they had been standing. The rebel works were well made. On the inner side, traverses were built at short intervals for protection from crossfires. The spaces between these were called by the men horse stalls. A dozen or more men could crowd into each space. The point where lay the 19th marked the division between that held by the rebels and that by the Union men. Right in front of the 19th were the horse stalls, each occupied by a few rebels, the thickness of the breastwork being the distance separating them from the enemy. From this point, the line bent back for some distance in the form of a bow. Around the knoll or ridge. To the right was the wood through which the wild charge of the regiment had been made and which the line extended. But there was an open space between the 19th and the woods, unoccupied by any line. Several times the rebels in front raised a white flag, and when the men started forward to see what was wanted, they were met by a volley which sent them to cover. Once a white flag was hoisted over the breastwork in front of Company C, and Edward Fletcher and an orderly sergeant of some company in another Massachusetts regiment mounted the works and found several rebels on the other side. The sergeant asked them if they wanted to come in, and the one nearest him said that they did. Then drop your guns, said the sergeant, and come over. Instead of coming over, he suddenly raised his musket and shot the sergeant through the head. Fletcher instantly shot the treacherous rebel in the head and jumped back among his comrades. The men of the 19th supposed that when they were relieved, they would be withdrawn. But this was not the case. They only fell back a rod or two, refilled their cartridge boxes, and fell in again with the line around the knoll where they kept at work until night closed the battle. Whenever the fire would slacken, the rebels would take advantage of it and try to advance. Their efforts to retake the works were continuous and persistent, and only by constant hammering were they kept down. Hundreds of pounds of lead and iron were thrown by both sides. The bullets lay on the ground like hailstones, and the ground was furrowed by solid shot and shell. The bodies of several Union dead lay between the lines on the ridge. They were shot through and through by friend and foe alike, being riddled and torn to shreds by many balls their uniforms in rags, looking almost as if they had passed through a shoddy mill. A mangled mass of flesh and cloth they lay, shaking continuously as the bullets struck them from either side. One gun with limber attached from either Gillis, U.S. or Brown's Rhode Island battery 
a section of each being brought up when the breastworks were carried, lay between the 19th and the woods in line of battle. Two of the horses were killed, and the driver had been entangled in the harness and killed. Horses and men were completely riddled by bullets, and there was not a place untouched on them the size of a man's hand. Trees, some as large as a man's body, which stood between the lines, were shot off and fell. And that is where we're going to end the episode. If you have a drink with you, or say a quick prayer for the comrade they've mentioned twice, Benjamin Falls, as apparently he was a damn good soldier and a great American. I hope this shows a small inkling into the combat that they suffered at the mule shoe and the bloody angle. And when I see calls today for people who yell about civil war, it makes me think of this, something so horrible. With that, my friends, thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured all to save But though he sleeps, his life was lost while struggling for the slave His soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Hallelujah, or his soul is marching on. John Brown was a hero, undaunted, true, and brave. And Kansas knew his valor when he fought her rights to save. And now, though the grass grows green above his grave, his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. For his soul is marching on He captured Harper's Ferry with us nineteen men so few And frightened old Virginie till she trembled through and through they hung him for a traitor, themselves a traitorous crew, but a soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. For a soul is marching on.
John Brown was John the Baptist of the Christ we are to see. Christ who of the bondman shall the liberator be. And soon throughout the sunny south the slaves shall all be free. For his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. That he heralded, he looked from heaven to view On the army of the Union With its flag red, white, and blue And heaven shall sing with anthems Or the deed they mean to do For his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Then strike while strike ye may The death blow of oppression In a better time and way The dawn of old John Brown Has brightened in the day And his soul is marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah So oh.